our Lord is the only one worthy of singing about and singing to. Is that true of you? Is that true of you? Let's pray as we ask God to open up his word to our hearts and minds. Lord, our desire now as we open up this precious, challenging passage of Scripture is that you'll give us attentive ears. Quicken our wills, Lord. Enable us to absorb this. Lord, this is a, um, an in-depth passage. It'll be a little bit long. I pray that you give us endurance. Pray that you'll help us. Pray that you'll equip us. Pray that you'll give us unity and love here at Grace United and every church around the world. May they experience love and unity as well. May the entire body of Christ experience love and unity now more than ever before. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, sports writer J.J. Chasen described what he called malice in the palace. If you're a basketball fan, you know what I'm talking about here. On November 19, 2004, the Indiana Pacers and the Detroit Pistons decided not to follow the rules of sportsmanship and started a huge fight on the court. What started from Ben Wallace shoving Ron Artest after a foul by Artest, things went south in a hurry and actually included the fans. Both the Pacers and the Pistons cleared the bench and some players began punching each other. The coaches and referees tried everything they could to stop the fight, but the players simply were too angry and they continued in the fight. Now things got worse when one of the fans poured a beverage on our test and provoked him to come into the stands and to fight the fan. And it got so out of hand that the referees decided to call the game, ending it early. The rules of basketball were simply not followed in the fight, causing the players to return to a state of nature and forget the rules they were supposed to follow. And Jason concludes, and he quotes another author named Hobbes. He says, without rules, everything turns to chaos. Isn't that true? <laughs> Indeed, what would any sporting event be like if there were no rules? It wouldn't be sport, would it? Paul writes to his mentee, Timothy, in 2 Timothy 2, 5, about this very thing. And in this last letter that he would ever write, he wrote this to Timothy. Now, he was on death row in a place called the Mamertine Prison for sedition against the state because Paul had the audacity to declare that Jesus and not Caesar was Lord. And by the way, I'm going to put the scripture references of what I'm going to be talking about today. We're not going to be flying through them and, and have you look them all up because we have a lot to cover today. So as you, as you listen as you engage, you know, there's some uh, scripture passages on the screen, so you might want to go ahead and, and jot some of those down. I encourage you to read through them later and to study them more. But Paul writes this in 2 Timothy 2.5. He says, An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Now, Paul knew that spiritual athletes playing by the Lord's rules would automatically be out of bounds in the Roman Empire. And those in the empire who make the rules didn't take too kindly to people pledging allegiance to Jesus and not to Caesar. Now, last week we talked about Paul's heart, his passion. He said that he would rather die than to be deprived of the right to preach the gospel free of charge, lest he be a burden on the Corinthian believers. Now, Paul was free in Christ. He was not tied to anything that this world offered to him. Early on in his ministry, Paul told the Galatian believers that the world was crucified to him and he was crucified to the world. And Paul spent the rest of his life laboring for the glory of the Lord until a, net, until a sword met his neck and he died as a martyr. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul invited them to join him in going for the gold, as it were, in their lives with the Lord, much like an athlete would play by the rules, disciplining their bodies and keeping them under control. But there's a reason why Paul used the athletic terminology. It was the most vivid picture he could paint in encouraging the Corinthians to give their all 
to the Lord. And at the end of chapter 9, Paul expresses a grave concern. Paul made it a habit to keep his body under control so as not to break God's rules as a spiritual athlete. But why did he do that? Why did he keep his body under control? He tells us in verse 27 of chapter 9, But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Now, what was Paul's concern? That after giving people the right message, that he would live the wrong message and thereby be disqualified. Well, it begs the question, Paul, what does it mean to be disqualified? Well, the Greek word that's translated as disqualified here, it's translated into English in various ways, and none of them are pleasant. Words like debased, worthless, unfit, failed are the ways, other ways this word is translated. Now, Paul uses this word in describing God giving over people to a debased mind in Romans chapter 1, verse 28. And those who profess to know God but deny Him by their works, being unfit for any good work in uh, Titus 1.16, to give just two examples here. This is a word that is not very fun to be used. In other words, Paul's concern carries with it eternal consequences. And to quote one learned guy about 1 Corinthians 9.27, Paul is engaged in moral exhortation and not talking here about the security of the believer in this passage. Now, this word here means proven false, to be shown to be a counterfeit. And the problem for many Corinthians, this guy continues, is that they have disconnected their personal salvation from their calling to service and absolute allegiance to God. Now, this author finishes his description this way. To secure a share in the gospel, it is not enough to please oneself in the church, to assert one's freedom, or to be easygoing. And I will add, what did Jesus say to anybody who wanted to come after him? In Luke 9, 23, he said this, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross. How often? Anybody knows. Daily and follow me. See, eternal salvation does not consist in what we profess. Eternal salvation consists in our entire lives going after Jesus, not mere words that we speak into his ear, so to speak. And so for Paul, living as a spiritual athlete, a true Christian, it is absolutely vital that he and the Corinthians not disconnect their calling to salvation from their service and absolute allegiance to God. Paul's grave concern was for the Corinthians and even for himself was that they not be disqualified. Can you imagine Paul being concerned about this? But he was. He didn't want to be finally rejected by the ultimate judge in the competition of life, to use the analogy. But as an aside, though, we might be thinking, where's the grace? Where's the assurance of salvation here? Well, two brief points. First, we are saved by His grace through our faith in Christ. But who is Christ? He's Lord of all. And as Lord, if Christ is really the Savior, if Christ is your Savior and Lord, then it's a simple answer, isn't it? We do what he says. He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Do these things, even if it doesn't make sense, even if we have to suffer like our brothers and sisters in Algeria are suffering right now. See, we obey him. Why? Because we love him. Because he loved us first. Second, we have an entire letter in the scriptures that speak about assurance. You knew that, didn't you? It's First John. First John says many times, he says, we know that we've come to know him if. Notice what he didn't say. He did not say we've come to know him if. In other words, this is about assurance. In a nutshell, John tells us that we receive assurance of salvation if we loyally follow Jesus. Not perfectly, but loyally follow Jesus. 
See, we gain assurance also in 1 John, as he tells us, if we love one another. And we're going to talk about loving one another a little bit later. And so in today's passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 to 22, Paul gives examples from his own ancestors, uh, children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who were indeed disqualified in verses 1 to 11. Then he's going to give the Corinthians a surefire strategy to greatly assist them and us from disqualification by living a life of integrity to God in verses 12 to 15. And then finally, Paul will return to answering the question that began this discussion and we're still in the middle of, starting in chapter 8, verse 1. He says, what about food being offered to idols? And he covers this in verses 16 to 22. And here we will find that what I believe is a profound principle that we can apply in our fellowship as we seek to live out God's purposes at Grace United here. Indeed, for the whole body of Christ, it's love and unity. We're going to see how Paul drives home the point that we all need one another, not merely tolerate one another, not merely just getting along as fellow church members here. See, the salvation of souls is at stake by our love and unity. But, of course, no pressure, right? So let's now pay attention to Paul's words of exhortation here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 to 22. So let's read together verses 1 to 11. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, sisters, that our fathers were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, and were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, and they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 of them fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. See, we have several perfect examples here, as it were, of what Paul warns the Corinthians about. Don't be like these people of old, he says. They were disqualified. But why would they treat God this way? It doesn't make sense when we read the stories. See, Paul recounted here that God provided for them spiritual food and spiritual drink. In other words, supernaturally took care of them in the desert. He gave them water. He gave them food for 40 years in a place where there was no food, a place where there was no water. For 40 years, he supplied about a million people in the desert. Amazing. What did God do? He just kind of shifted in every day, didn't he? Through the manna, through the water. God also supplied them with a pliable and strong leader in God's hands. Well, for the most part, you know, even Moses himself was disqualified from going into the promised land. But let me say a brief word here about the rock being Christ, as he said. The learned guys are all over the map on this. But the best way we can think of this is the direct tie between the blessings of God's people in the Old Testament and the blessings of God's people in the New Testament. See, Moses calls God a rock several times and even referred to him as the rock of Israel's salvation in Deuteronomy 32. But in spite of the Lord's constant protection and care, God's people lived as though they were pagans. And God was not pleased. And they committed idolatry as Aaron fashioned a golden calf and actually declared this, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. I mean, Moses was on the mountain, and they were doing this. 
They engage in sexual immorality and idolatry as well in Numbers chapter 25, verses 1 to 3. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. And so Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, God's people worshiping a false god. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, multiplied thousands, died in one day. God judged them. He was not pleased with their immorality. He was not pleased with their idolatry. And God spoke, or God's people also had a complaining spirit. Now, anybody guilty of a complaining spirit? (laughs) Okay, I see some hands there. I didn't ask for a response, but yeah. But listen in Numbers chapter 24, verses 21, verses 4 to 6. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. So what happened? And the people spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Now, wait a minute. Did you just say there was no food? What they were complaining about was what God had provided for them. And so what did God do? God sent fiery serpents among them. Anybody love snakes? I see one. How about, how about a poisonous snake? Uh-huh. I don't know about you, but not me, man. Uh-uh. Stay away, snakes. I'll be willing to kill those things. But God sent poisonous, fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many people died. And even then, when the people confessed their sin and they repented, the Lord told them, here's a way that you can be healed. He said, Moses, make a bronze serpent. Put it on a pole. Anybody who looks at that serpent will be healed from their snake bite. What grace! God could have said, you know what? I'm going to direct all of these serpents to come and wipe all of you out. But he didn't. God is gracious and merciful and kind. Now, Paul used these examples to show the Corinthians and us that God has not changed. He is the same yesterday and today and forever. But unfortunately, tragically, even from the pulpits in our country and around the world, even some of them, some believe that the God of the Old Testament is somehow different than the God of the New Testament. It's kind of like in the Old Testament, God's like an angry God, an angry judge who destroys people at the drop of a hat, right? You know about this kind of a caricature of God. But he gives people a pass in the New. Like he's, he's kind of like a, a gentler, kinder God in the New Testament. But let me remind us that the Lord's steadfast love is all over the Old Testament. And here's what Jeremiah said as one example. In Lamentations 3, 22 and 23, he says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. This is Old Testament, folks. This is Old Testament. But let me remind us also that when the Lord comes back, he's not going to play nice. Remember the picture John paints in Revelation where Jesus is going to come back as the warrior most fierce and trample down his enemies. With the word, he will kill them all. The blood will be coming up to the horse's bridles for miles. It will splatter that high. And one day, all of us are going to stand before this one to give an account of our lives. So let's dispatch with the so-called different God's theory, shall we? Once and forever. And Paul reminds the believers here that lest they think that God is okay with them and covered by his grace and don't have to worry about judgment, the apostle then writes these words in verses 12 to 15. He says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. 
No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. But God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. It's so Paul is saying, wake up, Corinthians. Wake up. You claim to follow Jesus. You think that you're okay and he's okay with your sin because he covered you with his blood, with the blood of Jesus. You've somehow taken this idea on that you were okay to be God's called people but refused to live as though you're God's called people. Take heed, Corinthians. Take heed, Grace United. Now let's look at God's surefire way to help us from being disqualified by the ultimate judge in verse 13. Now this verse, it's famous. Many of us have it memorized. It's a long verse, and it applies to all kinds of temptations, but specifically to idolatry, as we'll see. Paul begins this famous verse by declaring that there is no temptation to sin that is unique. Everybody is tempted. There's nothing that somebody can say, hey, listen, my temptation is different than anybody else's and everybody else's. No, we're lying to ourselves when we think that. All of us get tempted by the same stuff, don't we? Don't we? (laughs) Yes, yes. Now, Let's look at the word overtaken. Now, this in the original language is known as a perfect tense verb. And what that basically means is this. We have been tempted. We are continuing to be tempted. And we will be tempted. If you're a human being, that applies to you. Anybody here not a human being? We're all human beings. All of us are going to be tempted. All of us have been tempted. All of us are being tempted even right now. Now, the idea that the temptations that were taking you and me is true. And because we're simply because we're human. Talk about being in this thing all together, right? But here's the profound truth. The Lord has given us a window into spiritual reality. And I'm so glad for that, aren't you? See, every person has been and will continue to be tempted throughout life. Now, just like we weren't asked to be born... Just like the Lord is not going to ask us when and if we want to die, we're all being tempted, and we all will be tempted. And so, since we cannot escape being tempted to sin against God and people, we might as well resign ourselves to this reality. Being tempted is a spiritual fact of life. But now notice the assurance and comfort that he gives to God's people. The Lord is faithful and will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we're able to bear. Take that in. Does this mean that I'm stronger than any temptation that comes my way? Yep. We are stronger than any temptation that comes our way. This is what it says. However, let's remember who lives in us as Christians. The Lord does. The Lord does by His Spirit. Now, naturally, we don't. Naturally, we fall on our faces all the time. But the Lord in us. What did Paul say? I can do all things through Christ. Not some things. All things through Christ who strengthens me. We don't have an excuse, friends. We don't. That's a bummer, but we don't have an excuse. It's like this. Whenever I yield Whatever I yield to, the other side loses in the spiritual battles. Okay? If I yield to the Lord, letting him have his way regarding this temptation, guess what loses? Sin does. But if I let the temptation have its way in my life, who loses? The Lord does, as it were. But when I yield to the Holy Spirit who lives in me, the enemy is defeated every time. Every time. Time. It's as simple as that. If I yield to sin, it's as if I turn off the power switch in my life in my battle against evil. We let the Lord have his way when we're tempted. So when we're tempted and yield to the Lord's ways, what happens, says here? 
He provides a way of escape so we can endure it. Endure what? The onslaught of the temptation. The Lord will enable us to see things through till the battle is over. Military terms, we call this a firefight, don't we? Now, the Lord experienced this. Remember when Jesus fasted in the wilderness for 40 days? Talk about social distancing, right? But the tempter, though, was right there with him. And we know the story. He was tempted in all these ways. And when Jesus got sick of it, finally, he told the enemy to scram. And he had to leave. He had to leave. And then Luke tells us in Luke 4, 13, he says, And when the devil had ended every temptation, what happened? He departed from him until an opportune time. He's coming back. And he came back. Jesus won the victory, and the devil backed down. But now look at the method by which we have victory over the temptation of idolatry. It's in the next verse, verse 14. Therefore, he says, flee idolatry. Flee it. Get away from it. Run away from it. This is how we apply verse 13 regarding idolatry. How do we flee? Let me give you some ways. Okay? Think of other things. We're allowed to change our minds, aren't we? Physically leave the place where you're being tempted toward idolatry. Walk away from the person you're with. In other words, we take action against this when we're confronted with idolatry. We don't allow ourselves to stay within the range of the enemy's fire. We don't argue with the enemy. We don't train ourselves to overcome the temptation to idolatry. We just flee. That's the point that Paul is making here. We don't discuss it. We just leave. And Paul tells us also in 1 Corinthians 6, 18, to flee another sin just like it. And he says, flee sexual immorality in the same way. We get away from it. We walk away from it. We don't argue with the enemy over it. We don't train ourselves to overcome it. We run from it. Think of Joseph in the Old Testament. Now, he could have stayed and argued with Potiphar's wife. You know, Potiphar's wife, Mrs. Potiphar, you don't have to do this, do you? But what did Joseph do? He left. He got out of there, and he got out of there quick. We are to flee this idolatry. We're to flee sexual immorality. And the grand and glorious thing is that we can have victory over sin. Are you struggling with sin? We can have victory over this. Every single time we apply this, we can do this. But now, we cannot say, though, in this life that we can't overcome it. And even on the day of judgment, we cannot tell the Lord, Lord, you know, these temptations are too strong for me. Because he will say, "Uh uh-uh, no, I gave you the answer. I gave you the way out. We have no excuse. And what this does, it makes me say, hallelujah. What about you? We can overcome this. It's amazing. We don't have to wonder whether we have what it takes to make it to the finish line at the end of the day as a true Christian. We do. Christ, through his spirit, has given us everything that we need. Everything. And now that we've heard Paul's warnings to not be like those who were disqualified in the wilderness and how to battle temptation in our lives today, Paul now returns to giving them more explanation about the question that they had. Namely, what about meat offered to idols? Let's look at verses 16 to 22. The cup of the blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break is not a participation in the body of Christ. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, by imply that what the pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not God. I don't want you to be participants with demons. You can't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to envy and jealousy? 
Are we stronger than he? So what's Paul's do? What is he doing here? In addressing food to idols, he is now reminding the Corinthians of the elements of communion, the Lord's Supper. And I'm excited about the Lord's Supper next week, aren't you? I don't see a whole lot of smiles. But yes, I'm excited. We can come together. It's wonderful that we can do this. Please come prepared to partake. And we're going to make things safe. We've already talked about it. We're going to do things, social distancing and cleansing and all that kind of thing. You don't have to worry about being contaminated. But come, come, participate. It's the blood of Christ, the body of Christ, Paul says. When we partake, we are, as it were, reenacting what went on in the upper room right before Christ was crucified. He said the elements that they would take into themselves represented his soon-to-be-shed body or blood and soon-to-be-broken body. Bits of food, an act of worship, a memorial service. He said, do this in remembrance of me. See, Jesus ushered in the new covenant. His shed blood did that. Communion is not merely something that we do every fifth Sunday as a religious exercise. No, this is a profound thing. We come, we need to come profoundly remembering what he's done for you and for me. Yes, he died. We can't even fathom that, can we? There's no way we can get our minds around that, that the Savior of the world died for us in our place. But just as profoundly, what did our relationship with God do at that point? How did it change? He wrote the Torah, the law of God on our hearts, giving us the want to, to do this. He gave us the the power to make it happen as well. He completely forgave us of all of our sins, all of them. And so much more. He made us part of the family of God. It's an amazing thing as we partake of communion. This is what we are to remember. And speaking of family, notice that Paul said we partake of the one bread. This one bread broken, represents Christ's body, but it's also a clear reminder that we are all one in Christ. One serving of bread. Unity in the body of Christ is another aspect of communion. And no wonder Paul says that we participate in the blood by remembering his shed blood and ushering in a new covenant and partaking in the body of Christ, his broken body, but one body. Communion is a big deal. And that's why we are to regularly do this. But now I want us to zero in on the question that Paul asked in verses 19 to 20. Let's read it again. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not God. Does that sound familiar? That question sound familiar? What about in chapter 8, verse 4? And Paul said this, therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that, quote, an idol has no existence. And that, quote, there is no God but one. This was a statement made by someone who was displaying their freedom. Remember how I introduced him. I introduced him as brother knowledge. All right, brother knowledge. He was so caught up in, in how the Lord delivered him from idol worship that he adopted the point of view that an idol has no real existence that there's nothing there. That was his view. And we remember that Paul took brother knowledge to task because he was steamrolling right over another person whom he called brother conscience, or I call it brother conscience. This guy was more sensitive to things in, in the spiritual world. In fact, he was so sensitive that when he would eat dinner, which included meat, and he knew that it was the meat sacrificed to idols, he would be thinking that he actually would be participating in a sacrifice to demon worship. And so Paul now is ready to really address this issue, putting a fine point on his point. In short, Paul clarifies the truth here. He's telling Brother Knowledge that he's a bit off in his understanding of the reality of things. He corrects Brother Knowledge by actually agreeing with Brother Conscience that idols really are something. 
rather than nothing. And that food sacrifice to idols is a real thing in the unseen world of evil spirits. Paul is telling those on both sides of the issue, real things happen to when, when food is offered to idols. This food is actually offered not to gods, as in deities, but they're offered to demons. Though it is true, brother knowledge, that there's only one God, brother conscience, you're also correct that real things happen when food is offered to idols. This brings us to the issue that Paul raised at the beginning of the chapter. Flee idolatry. Now, Paul finishes up here by saying to them that their worship is to be distinct. He says, Corinthians, you cannot mix objects of worship. It is either the true and living Godhead, Father, Lord Jesus, and Holy Spirit, or it is demons. You Corinthians cannot have both. The ways and objects of your worship of God must be different than the ways of the pagans. If not, you're going to arouse the anger of God, and he is going to disqualify you. You're going to prove that you are disqualified from the race of life. You will show that you are not his people after all if you do this. Corinthians, remember what I'd said earlier to you. Those who practice lifestyle issues, kind of like sexual morality or idolatry, adultery, homosexuality, thievery, greed, drunkenness, and having a really mean spirit. It's called revilers. These show themselves that they are disqualified. They are counterfeit Christians, counterfeit spiritual athletes. They're not true Christians. It's pretty heavy stuff, isn't it? It ought to make us cry out to God and beg Him to do a deep work in our heart so that our walk matches our talk, lest we show ourselves as disqualified. Now, I said earlier that we're going to find a profound principle that we can apply in our fellowship as we seek to live out God's purposes for us as Grace United. It's love and unity. It's really simple. So simple that you might have missed it as we were going through. Remember how I said that Paul agreed with Brother Knowledge and he agreed with Brother Conscience? Both had their points. Both were right to a degree, but both were wrong in some points. But they were both born again. Both were part of the family of God. And here's a profound application that we can take from here today. And I find it amazing how the Lord has, in his sovereignty, allowed us to come together to talk about this non-gospel issue that we need unity with. For as we know, there's another non-gospel issue that has gripped us as a church, has gripped us as a nation, as a world, as humans. And what is that issue? It's COVID-19. I mentioned last week that I don't believe anybody is a weak brother here in this. All of us have strong opinions about COVID-19. Isn't that true? I don't know of anybody that's just like, well, I don't really know about these things. All of us have strong opinions. And so we can consider ourselves brother knowledge with this. And as your pastor, let me share with you one thing that I don't care one whit about and one thing that I care very deeply about. I don't care one whit what your view of COVID-19 is. Not one whit. I don't care. And I'm sure that you don't care what I believe either. (laughs) But one thing I am deeply concerned about is how we treat one another concerning this issue. Are we going to divide over this issue? Because some people do divide. Some Christians divide over COVID-19 issues. And so what I'm going to do very quickly is I want to get some things out on the table so we can look at them. I'm going to represent several facts that I'm sure we can agree on. And then I'm going to do my best to give an even-handed approach for both sides of the issue. We need to listen to one another as spiritual siblings, okay? We need to listen to one another. We need to accept one another. And also I want to point out some eternal truth as well. So if you'll indulge me, here's some facts that I can sure that we can all agree on. Number one, this is a virus. Would you agree with this? Yes, absolutely. It's a virus. Now, viruses exist. 
for a reason. We live in a fallen world. Now, I've come across some, I think, credible source, and, and maybe, you know, correct me if I'm wrong. I'm obviously open to be corrected. I've been wrong at least once in my life. But my understanding is that there are millions of viruses in the world. And some of the learned people say there are trillions of viruses in the world. And it makes me wonder, if there are trillions of viruses, why any of us are still alive, right? And so what that means is, for me, the more people that are on this planet, the more prone we are to experiencing viruses. Truly, we are not in charge of our lives. Truly, God is the one who protects us, whether we're Christians or not. And second, many people have died with COVID, not from COVID. And I think it's really important that we understand it this way. For anyone who's been paying attention, we know that it is rare indeed for a perfectly healthy person to die only from the COVID virus itself. Now, as we know, Drs. Fauci and Burks, they said the vast majority of people who get this virus, they recover with no problems. They don't even know they have it, right? Isn't that true? We've heard this. And those who do catch it and pass away with it, it's the underlying diseases or weaknesses that they already have is what takes their lives. Just like any other virus, the flu virus, for example. Third, the heart of the narrative has changed. Can we agree with that? It's changed. See, initially it was, we need to flatten the curve so we don't overwhelm the medical system. That's true. We, we saw that. But now it is largely, we need to make sure that, we, that none of us get the virus. That is a big change. For example, one example among many, the mayor of Los Angeles said on May 13th that Los Angeles will never completely open until we have a cure. And for many, that means a vaccine. Everybody in the world needs to be vaccinated in order for Los Angeles to open up. Fourth, we have never quarantined the healthy in in our history. But we do it now. Why? Question. Fifth, the elderly and those with chronic health problems need to be protected. We know this. But now let me briefly present both sides here, I think. Hopefully I can do this as even-handedly as possible because I have an issue. I mean, I have a, a, an opinion. You have your opinion as well and see if we can kind of come to a meeting of the hearts and minds here. On one side, we have experts who are very knowledgeable in their field. This side is largely characterized by a belief that we need a vaccine and that the only way we can be safe is everybody is immunized. Social distancing and donning of personal protective equipment is a must, lest the virus gets passed on to even those or by those who are asymptomatic. Typical of this position is that we need to continue to keep people home and businesses closed or reduced so that we can keep people from getting the virus. Follow the directions, follow the mandates of those in power. And if the citizenry does not comply with the suggestions of state and local governments, then it's up to the governors then who will enforce these things by edict. The typical results on another side are these. Medication, which has proven successful by many doctors and patients, exists. It's called hydroxychloroquine which when taken properly serves as to what amounts to be a cure. Also typical of this position is the need to achieve herd immunity, which means social distancing and masks are not needed. Indeed, we need to get close enough to one another so we can get the virus so that those who are healthy can get it and build up the immunity. And we can do it on a grand scale. A third point is that those who hold this position see contradictions. For example... How many people have pets? We have pets, right? Our pets do things, go out places. They come back. And what do they do to us? They lick us. We pet them. You know, as one person said, that's in the name. We pet our pets, right? Where have they been? Do we wash our hands? Do we wash the pet every time it comes in? No, I imagine not. That's the idea. Or what about going to the store and purchasing something? You know, how many people 
take their purchases and immediately wipe it all down completely before going into the house. That's another contradiction they see. And lastly, those who believe in this position say they need to trust, we need to trust and build our immune system because we cannot sanitize the universe. So now that I've tried to put the facts out there and made it hopefully even-handed on both sides, let me wrap up this message by giving some eternal truth. First of all, this virus is temporary, is it not? It's temporary because, as I mentioned at the beginning of, of the service today, viruses are here because we live in a fallen world. When Jesus comes back, he's going to make everything right. No more viruses then. Isn't that wonderful? Great. So no matter how long this thing lasts, it is temporary. And we as spiritual siblings, though, we have an eternal thing going on, don't we? We have relationships that's going to last forever. So we don't need to divide over this issue. And the Lord is not going to hold us accountable to the position that we held concerning the coronavirus, is he? He didn't care in a sense. But what he does care about is how we've treated one another in this issue when we disagreed with each other. And not just corona, but in everything else, right? Every other non-gospel issue. He cares deeply about how we treat one another. Remember what Jesus says, as much as you've done it to the one of the least of these, my brothers, you've done it to me. Well, who are Jesus' brothers? <laughs> All of us. We're Jesus' brothers. We need to treat one another with the same respect and love that Jesus wants us to give even to him. Second, we need to address the elephant in the room one-on-one. If we have a difference of opinion about the COVID, one person's on one side, one person's on the other, let's talk about it. Let's get it out in the open, what our differences are. Has it occurred to you that an authentic fellowship of believers We can do things here that people in the world can only dream about. We can indeed speak frankly to one another about our differences. Why? Because first and foremost, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. We're united around Christ. Not about whether we like each other or not. Not about whether we are Baptists or Presbyterians or whatever. Not about whether we like COVID or we don't like COVID or whatever the case. We are united around Christ. That's our issue here. And this is where unity comes in. When the watching world sees Christians who have a genuine disagreement about such a volatile issue, an issue, and we can still come out the other side with love and unity toward one another, that puts the salts and makes them thirsty for love and for truth themselves. And third and last, we are salt for our society. And what I mean by that is that Jesus tells us that we are the salt of the earth. This does not mean that we are a cultural flavor enhancer, okay? You may have heard this before. It does not mean that we are to slow the rot and slow the rate of cultural rot in our society. That's not what this is talking about. Here's what Jesus is talking about. Here's what salt is in, in, as he you know, referred to us as being that way. Salt is a symbol for our relationship with the Lord. It's our distinctiveness. It's mentioned in many places in the Old Testament regarding God's people and the sacrifices that that we are to give to Him. For example, Leviticus 2.13, he says, You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offerings. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. That's what we're to do. We are to be here to remind people that God exists and that we all have to do with this one God. We're going to stand before him one day. We are to be distinct from the world. We are to do things differently. And showing love and unity at a time like this is the most powerful, important thing that we can do to a world, demonstrate before them a world that is literally dying God is at work here in the midst of COVID-19. Is he not? Many people have their own mortality on their minds. It's up close and personal with them. How often do they think about death now? 
and as spiritual athletes, true Christians, let us demonstrate to the world that we are the salt of the earth by the way that we are unafraid of the virus, by the way we display true unity and love to one another, and finally that all of us will die one day. We need to embrace this. Do you embrace this? That you're going to die one day? People out there are scared to death of it. We can give them hope that there is life on the other side. They don't have to worry about it. We can do this. God has sovereignly placed COVID-19 in our laps. It is our time to shine here. I'm going to finish this message as I began referring to Paul's last letter that he would write, 2 Timothy. He has some things very close to his heart that he wanted to share with his mentee. Things concerning life and hope. And may we adopt these things as well and take them into our spiritual core and strengthen our spiritual life so that we may share it with those who so desperately need it. Here's what he says in 2 Timothy 1, 8 to 12. Therefore, do not be ashamed about the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life in immortality to light through the gospel for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I'm not ashamed, he says, for I know whom I believe and am convinced that he's able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Let's pray. Lord, we have gone long today. But Lord, our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world, they're probably saying, we're just getting warmed up. Lord, I pray that you would give us spiritual endurance. We all need that so desperately, so badly. I pray, Father, that you'll take this word that we were able to hear today, your word, Lord, and apply it to our lives. Lord, we are brothers and sisters in Christ, those of us who know you as Lord and Savior. And Lord, this, this, this whole issue threatens to undo us if we'll let it. This whole issue, Lord, threatens to uh, divide us, which is what you did not want to have happen. Lord, you, your prayer for us is that we will be united. We will be one just as you and the Father are one. So Father, I pray that you'll take this message, seal it to our hearts, help us to, to apply it to our lives. Help us to love our brother. Help us to love our sister, regardless of the position they hold in any non-gospel issue. And we'll give you thanks. And we'll give you praise for it in Jesus' name. Amen.